0: I think it's less about Big Brother and uh, more about transparency. Like there are changes in how people are valuing this HR data. So I don't know if you've heard or if I've mentioned, like they are now requiring disclosure of HR metrics like turnover and engagement for investment firms. So Fortune 500, I think, is the one that's, that's W P is the one that's requiring it. Wow it's becoming more mainstream. So I think it's less about a big brother and more of like an acknowledgement of saying these metrics exist and you should be using them. You will get places where certain data sources will become less or will become more acceptable in the future. Like I think I heard someone say one time they wanted to use Facebook profiles for assessments. And I was like, absolutely not. That's ridiculous and silly. Why would you do that? All you need to do at a certain point in time once it hits critical mass is I have my Linden profile and I have my business Linden profile. And on my personal Linden profile, which is spelled differently, there's pictures of me having a beer, sitting on a dock, doing something yeah. silly. And on my business profile, I've got a suit tie in front of an equation, right? That's all that you need to break that model. So... As rules change, as the inputs change, the processes change, you will need to consider that in your process and models as well.
1: Welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. Today we have Lyndon Lanes, well, there's many things I could describe, Lyndon. Absolutely brilliant young man. But beyond that, he is an intelligent manager at the time of recording. He's working at Verizon and also a former graduate student of mine. So happy to have you here today, Lyndon. How are you?
0: I'm great. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I
1: want to ask you, you know, imagine there's a student out there. And and this podcast, obviously, is not just for students, but anyone who's relatively new to the whole data intelligence, I should say more specifically, is it intimidating? For you, perhaps it's not at this point, but could you see how some of this stuff might be a bit intimidating for people that are really more comfortable staying away from the numbers, staying away from some of the data?
0: Oh, yeah, I could see why this is intimidating. I mean, I look at it and it's intimidating for me and I can, I can manage it. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, especially with, depending on where you're housing that data and how it's structured, it's difficult. I mean, even as simple as, let's take this at the simplest state and we said, okay, I need you to just write down some information. Where you collected, where you store it becomes an issue. Because if you were to take this into Excel, like something a lot of people are comfortable with Excel, well, then you have version control issues. Ben's working on a document that's different from what Lyndon's working on. And when you combine them, now you have the variable of time scoring up, combine that data. Well then, okay, let's take and let's put it into Google. Google has limitations. I think Google's limitations, like I want to say three to five million is right around there. And it quits before then because it failed then. So even something simple as writing down information into a cell can get more complicated when you scale it to big data standards. So I can understand why people get anxious about it. I think, though, for a lot of places, the pros outweigh the cons. When you say, this is what we can do with it. Or if you had a Lyndon on your team or you had someone who can manage and understand this data, here's the cool things that you can do. The It outweighs it. And it also is just kind of like saying, hey, how can we support you in using these tools or getting comfortable with the data? Because you don't make people who don't get data more comfortable by talking more data. <laughs> 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 like, I can't tell you how many times I see people make that mistake.
1: Speak English. I want to stick with this point of speaking English because there are going to be some people listening that are business leaders that are thinking, all right, I want to know more about my people. I want to be more intelligent with the way I approach that. I know there are sort of two sides to your role, but maybe you could sort of give that elevator pitch. Every other Linden out there that's wondering like, Oh, I I wonder how big the job market could be. And for every business leader or HR professional that's really trying to understand their people more, how would you describe in a sort of layman's term way what you do and what value you and people like you can add to another company's team?
0: Sure. So I am basically your HR data nerd. And that lets you do a lot of cool things because people don't nerd out about HR data enough. What that allows you to do is I can tell you where you can find talent how that talent is changing who's got that talent who you can get that talent from so this is all ta based right what do you mean ta based this is all talent acquisition like supporting that talent acquisition use case and i can tell you how those jobs and those skills are changing within there so that's D based and i can tell you how to help plan for that talent pool so that you can actually achieve your business outcomes and that's your business base so that's speaking to three different clients your talent acquisition client your learning development client, and your business client. Because if you want to roll out 5G, right, you need the engineers to do that. Well, let's just make up numbers. If there's five people who can do that, then you're going to have to really have a hard time competing for that talent. So how do you plan out for building it? So simply put, I'm a data nerd focusing on HR. I can tell you how roles are changing, how to plan for those roles. I can tell you how to, where to find them. And I can just tell you all kinds of cool things that we do with data with non-black box magic tricks.
1: Mm-hmm. So from what you're saying, a lot of your data must come from outside of your organization then if you're going to make those kind of predictions. By the way, if you're listening and you hear a little child in the background, Lyndon is like Superman because he has two young children in his workspace, which is currently at home. So no problem if we hear a little bit of noise in the background, Lyndon.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. They often guest star and provide critical business input online. <laughs> I
1: bet they do. <laughs> yeah, so you do have to go outside of your organization to collect this information, right?
0: Yes. And that's where it's different. That's where I think what we do is different from a lot of other people. I think you mentioned like cutting edge and being at a space where a lot of companies don't do it. That's the secret sauce is pulling in that external data and using it because that is where you see real value, right? Remember research designs and research, Ben was my instructor for research designs. And if you're taking the sample size, N size one, right? N size your company, one. And how reliable is that sample? Let's blow that up. Let's say N size 500, Fortune 500, N size entire United States, N size world. Can you rely on that data more so than what's happening to the talent within your company? Does that give you a better perspective or another understanding? Or a different way to analyze and view the data? And the answer is yes. So for our taxonomy stuff specifically, if we were building our taxonomy based entirely only on Verizon data, we would end up with a broken system, right? So we use the external data, what skills are required for a job externally and internally to help shape our taxonomy, which is really great. And if you don't know what taxonomy is, it is a logical ordering of skills and jobs That can or cannot be nested so that you can bucket them in logical groups.
1: I love the scientific explanation that you just gave for taxonomy. And it's absolutely right. Don't take this offense. I'm a bit of a nerd myself. So like for the data nerds, that's like the perfect description, right? But for the non-data nerds, what you're basically saying is, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you're basically needing to come up with definitions of really what every job is and what every job is requiring, like what are the skills and, and the abilities, etc., of every job. Because if the market sales associate, let's just say, there's a certain idea of what a sales associate is. But if, in fact, the market is defining that differently, and we're defining it differently to the market, then when we actually try and make projections about what we need and actually look for those people, we're we're not really comparing it to the outside world where we need to attract people from. So it seems to me like as jobs are evolving, both internally and in the market, you guys have a part to play in making sure that your company is defining these roles the right way so that you can attract and also keep and plan the right way. Is that anywhere near what you were saying?
0: Yep. That's exactly it. I mean, it's fun. It's so much fun. Like if we were to take, for example, for anyone who's interested in analytics, right? Let's say there's two sets of way of looking at it. All of this is about different perspectives, right? And combining those all into one understanding. So if we took this from a concept of an analyst, like we said, but really when you say analyst, everyone else defines it as a data scientist. It's a lot harder to find them. And then if you said, well, I don't just want someone who can use Excel. I need somebody who can also do a lot of other things. I need them to know natural language processing. Then it's a smaller cut. And... It's really fun and interesting to see that and change. And it's fun and interesting to take that and talk to people who are growing and developing enroll and, and saying, hey, if you're a data scientist, here's the core skills you need, but here's the emerging skills. It's natural language processing, computer vision, graph node analysis, Julia, like these are what you need to level up your data science, not just knowing Python, programming languages and things like that.
1: So who's teaching that? Like you're saying, hey, I want to find someone that's got natural language processing. And you mentioned some others, computer vision, Julia, did you say? Yeah. I have no idea what any of those things are. And look, I'm not saying I'm a smart guy, but like I've taught in a master's degree program. We've gone into all sorts of different subjects. I've never heard of that before, which just shows you either how poorly I read Or that this stuff isn't being introduced in the academic world. So I guess my question is, and I've been out of the academic world for a few years, so maybe there is somewhere out there you can learn it. But where are you finding these people? And where would one of our listeners learn about some of this stuff if they don't have it in the company they're working at?
0: That's really a good question. It's actually a back to economic principle of supply and demand, right? So a lot of what we will use is demand data. Companies asking for this talent. Company is saying, "We need Julia. We want to get someone with natural language processing." So that's the demand, and supply. We're going to grab that from a couple of places, and we might say, "Where is this being taught?" Or we might say, "What talent pool is actually having that skill set through our mineable database?" So who's teaching it is some of the research questions we actually answer, like. And we answered this recently. The question was like, I need to find data scientists. What schools can we go to? (laughs) Um, And we were actually able to go beyond what you can have mineable. We combine different data sets together, which is fun. So you might say, oh, okay, I'm making this up. Go to Washington, D.C. They've got the largest amount of students enrolled in data science courses. All right, that's one part of the equation, but you don't get the quality. So you might then say, all right, later on, what those students are coming out of that program with, layer on the data that we can gain, the qualitative, deeper level data that we can get from there. And don't just go by volume, go by quality of what they're getting out of those programs. Do we still say go to Washington DC or do we say something else? And in cases, some cases, many cases, We've said we've changed from just looking at the volume to going to another place that has better quality based on the skill sets that we're pulling from our data set. So it's really
1: fun. So I really think this is interesting. And I appreciate the fact that there may be only so much you can reveal from your secret source. Um, My thought process goes wild when you say things like, oh, we're going to look at qualitative information because that's obviously like text anything that they're communicating that we have the data on so anything that is available on the open market in terms of content i'm guessing there's some pulling of that there's some assessment of that to find out if in fact people are doing well because otherwise unless you're getting their grades sent to you you're probably not going to know very easily if people are actually coming out and doing well all you would know is who's employed who's not employed I'm guessing you can get a lot from the job sites to see the demand to, to layer things the way you're describing. It really is interesting because you're basically bringing a couple of different factors that are the biggest predictors that you know of. And I'm guessing I'm really overly simplifying what you're doing, but then that's, you're sort of scraping data from here and you're picking out predictors from there. And somehow you're coming up with a model then can be used internally to decide, is this something we can do internally? Is this something we've got to contract out? Are those kind of things discussed at any point?
0: Yeah. What we hire internally a contract out, we'll partner, we'll do that analysis and we'll partner with the workforce planning team to handle that because, well, I mean, it's just, I'd like to stick more to the science and analytics and they can really engage with the business. We can deep dive. So they will handle that part, but we do use this information for that and it's really great and fun. I think what I like about all of this is really interesting is research is a big part, understanding how to design a research project. And we might not do that ourselves. We might pay someone. So we have vendors that we partner with because you need a separate full team. Scrape mine and make that data into a good pipeline. That's a full-time job. We partner with vendors to do that. But it's fun because we act in very much like a research team. We will build the research. I will say like, how would you construct this? How can we validate it? What's a way that we can measure it? Let's say, and this is a bad measure, I've seen people try and measure how good a candidate will be based on how much public speaking they do. I've seen that <laughs> as a measure from another company and other vendors trying to sell yeah. this product. They said, like, you know, part of what we model and we rank and rate people on is like how many conferences they're speaking at. And are like, That's awful. How is that useful? I might be an awful public speaker and I might be completely brilliant, but I don't want to share my ideas or I legally cannot because of my company's uh, stance on things. You've completely cut a large chunk of your talent pool and you're waiting people inappropriately. So imagine us taking that approach and knocking out that question and then saying, mm-hmm. what else could we use that could be appropriate, valid, measurable, and usable without getting us sued? That's the fun part too. You know
1: what you're getting me excited now because like you're getting into the world of measurement which i know a lot of people are super bored by but i tell you when you're trying to capture something when you're really trying to measure something just like when you step on the scales and you measure your weight or you measure your height it's so like objective the scales are measuring pounds and the height is measuring whatever centimeters meters inches whatever it is right but when we start trying to measure some of the things that you're describing it can easily go wrong right we can easily be measuring something other than what we think we're measuring, which is the topic of validity. And thinking about the outcome measure, which obviously is like whether this actually turns out to be successful or not, everything we're putting in at the front end, it's garbage in, garbage out. So if we're doing bad measurements at the front end, we're going to get bad outcomes on the other end. So I think it's really great that you're thinking about this stuff the conference thing, that blows my mind because I've seen so many people present at conferences that they're content, they're experts, but to your point, either they can't speak about certain things or they're lousy public speakers. And so it's kind of like you're gonna make a, an assessment. this person's really good. I guess the logic is that well if they keep getting asked back, then they're probably quite good. But if they're the only person that can really speak to that subject, then they're probably going to get caught if they're the only person available to to attend,
0: or they, if they happen to know someone who's got a podcast who used to be their professor. You know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you must have a lot of professors. I see you on a lot of podcasts these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's, yeah.
0: that's the fun stuff. I think it's really great to do that. For anyone who's actually really interested in people analytics, I think one of the things that makes this job fun, and someone asked me once, like, why people analytics? Why not do finance? You'll get paid more. Why not do marketing? You'll get paid more. Absolutely, you get paid more, but it's the challenge of this data set. People don't really understand that people analytics, people data, imagine that what you would give to your financial analysts, your marketing teams, it is a fully blank white sheet of paper. It is a solid homogeneous, perfect data set. Now I'm going to ask you to take that piece of paper in your mind, fold it up, take a hole puncher through it, right? And then tear a chunk off and do that three times and layer it on top of each other. That is what your people data looks like. It is matrixed. It has holes in it and it's got layers and it's messy. And it's incredibly fun to be able to say, I can interpret this versus something that's perfect. So not everyone will like that. If you sounds awful that sounds like oh man what are you talking about lyndon maybe people analytics isn't for you there's a fair amount of dealing with imperfection and how do you deal with imputed versus uh, actual data
1: no, i think you're tapping into some good stuff here because like number one i don't know if i'm gonna ever get someone else to jump on a podcast with me that's so excited by data right so firstly if anyone out there is as excited or gets excited about it by listening to you, that's that's a good thing. And those people that aren't really data people, it's probably good to get a perspective or listen to a, a perspective about this because your organization may need someone like Lyndon. And yeah, you are doing research. In many ways, you're doing research. A lot of organizations may end up contracting out that research because they don't have the teams internally. So I'm guessing there's a Linden out there that services a whole bunch of different clients and organizations. But I just want to tap into one of the things you mentioned about the whole layering of data. And you're obviously trying to layer multiple factors, I suppose, in a way, I don't know if the Venn diagrams are fair, is any way near what you're describing, but you're essentially taking multiple factors and you're layering them in order to make a conclusion and make, make a prediction about them. Does that sound about right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. My thing is, where does the big brother element come in here? (laughs) Sorry to throw you under the bus like this, Lyndon. And you don't need to answer it in any way that would be difficult for you to answer. But there's a lot of data here. And I'm sure that data is not really leaving your office that I don't really care about. But like, where is the line? Is there a line? Because clearly the more data you have, the better you can predict and the more likely your company can make a successful decision about its talent, maybe even about its customers, obviously the market. So where's the line? And do you feel like that's something you should care about or even, and I'm not trying to lead you. I'm just trying to wonder, like, is there a line? And do you think at one point that line will be a lot clearer for other people in the industry?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a full topic on the construct of ethical data, right? That's really what you're kind of getting at here, ethical data. And I completely support that. There is a line and there are places where you should not do things. For example, like you could, I've heard companies say like, yeah, we could predict and project on mortality rates, right? Like when you're doing like your turnover and when you're looking at insurance claims and you can say like, oh wow, would you ever want a report or actually do that? Actually, you could, but you don't want to. That's an ethical boundary you don't want to cross. So there are places and cases where it comes up and you have to have the right people to see that and know that you shouldn't touch it or to say, what are the guardrails around it? So for my work, this data doesn't have to me an ethical bound because of the data sources we're using. So we're not using something off of someone's private page, right? We're not necessarily looking at someone who has privacy filters on, someone who doesn't want to be found. We're right. using data that's publicly available. We're using data that people want to allow to be seen, which is, I think we're okay. And then when you blend that with our own internal company data, when you take your HR data, you don't share it with outside of HR, right? You will aggregate mm-hmm. anonymize it all. So a lot of it is going to depend on your data source and that might change. You know, like the legal changes with LinkedIn trying to say, we own that data, you can't have it. The court ruling was that, That's publicly available data. It belongs to the user. If the user doesn't want that data available, then they can turn the privacy on and they won't find them. So that's an important thing to look at. And with the big brother aspect, I think it's less about big brother and more about transparency. Like there are changes in how people are valuing this HR data. So... I don't know if you've heard or if I've mentioned like they are now requiring disclosure of HR metrics like turnover and yeah. engagement for investment firms. So fortune 500, I think is the one that's less WP is the one that's requiring it. Wow. It's becoming more mainstream. So I think it's less about a big brother and more of like an acknowledgement of saying these metrics exist and you should be using them. You will get places where certain data sources will become less or will become more acceptable in the future. Like I think I heard someone say one time they wanted to use Facebook profiles for assessments. And I was like, Absolutely not. That's ridiculous and silly. Why would you do that? All you need to do at a certain point in time once it hit critical mass is I have my Linden profile and I have my business Linden profile. And on my personal Linden profile, which is spelled differently, there's pictures of me having a beer, sitting on a dock, doing something silly. And on my business profile, I've got a suit tie in front of an equation, right? That's all that you need to break that model. So as rules change, as the inputs change, the processes change, you will need to consider that in your process and models as well.
1: You know, you're right. There's a lot. I mean, it's it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to get their head around. Some people would probably say, okay, well, then I'm going to make everything private, which obviously would sort of shut down a lot of the data capturing. But I think that's really putting a head in the sand because that's really kind of ignoring the fact that, as you said, private information stays private. But this public information is typically things that we're all comfortable sharing among our network and among the society. You know, We post things all the time. We want to share that information. So I think in the real world, we're all going to be moving towards more and more and more public data in different forms. And so I guess the question would be, where's the next big data coming from, from your view? If we, I suppose you could look at this from either a technological standpoint or a society changing standpoint. Where do you see data going? I know that's probably a broad question, but in terms of like where you're getting data from five years from now, 10 years from now, What kind of societal changes do you think might influence where you get that data from?
0: I think that's a really tough question. I will play with the idea if we're talking about the future. So let's talk about different data sets and crazy laws. I think this is going to be an interesting source of data. Cell phones, cell phones and geospatial data will be something more interesting because they're using it for COVID. They're using it for exposure, right? My phone was next to your phone and you got sick. So now I need to call up Lyndon to say he was exposed, right? I think that is, and it's scary to me. That's where the big brother thing comes in. To me, that's an interesting place where I will see in the future, I would see, expect to see that kind of grow and rapidly develop. And I expect to see some kind of litigation say, no, you can do this or yes, you can. And then for it to stabilize. So I would see geospatial data points being used. In terms of analysis, I think the next step in HR data, and it's already happening, is the use of graph and node analysis, which people use for organizational network analysis. You can do it for a lot more than who talks to who. It's really actually better for other things. And What do you mean by graph and node? Organizational network analysis, that's like that fancy thing. If you've ever seen, there's a name in a bubble and other names in a bubble and little arrows, right? Uh-huh. So you know who's been talking to who.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. 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 So this is like either they're tracking email or phone communication and then sort of projecting that into a display of an output of some kind.
0: Yep. So that's a one that's going to grow more like for skills. We use it for skills. It's fantastic. Right. If you were to put in the word like data analysis. It gives you a very clean way to see clusters of the other terms around data analysis. So it's fantastic for skills. So graph node analysis is going to grow more as well as unstructured models or data structures. Like there's this cool thing I saw that uses WAV to VEC, which is sound to vectors. So the way that your Amazon Alexa works, it hears what you say, translates your words into text, text to vector. And it does computations off of that. But the next space is using sounds. And you can do that for all sorts of cool, interesting things. Like, are you hearing people talking in the background during an online assessment that's possibly cheating? For health services and security, are you hearing, like, windows breaking, right? Are you hearing smoke detectors? How that'll evolve in the people space, I haven't fully figured that out yet, but unstructured data sources, finding out new ways to use them will be interesting. And then, of course, the plug is with 5G, you can do all kinds of interesting cool new analytics and things.
1: What is something that really ticks you off about what you have to do?
0: Yeah, I will say so. Some of it is, while the scope of work is so grand and exciting, it's also very much mentally and emotionally taxing at times because there's so much, you just can't cover it all. So sometimes the scope of work is a bit of a problem. Like, oh, you're a data guy. You can do this. How about this? Can you do that too? And then you kind of, because you're like a Swiss army knife, right? You kind of get pulled into a whole lot of different directions. And then you kind of also say like, "What what is my job again? Am I a data engineer? Am I a data scientist? What am I doing? Like you kind of get pulled. So some of it is part that I don't like is the broad scope can sometimes become a bit of a problem where it's hard to focus And so much of this work is so reliant on focus. And the other part is the drain, right? Like 4 million data points. There's so many places if something breaks to quickly scale and audit and find that it's difficult sometimes. And the other part, which is not so big, but it uh, does take a little bit. You do get kind of frustrated. There are plenty of times where I have a Terminator Skynet thought process where I was like, get rid of all the humans. (laughs) Oh, man, this whole data set is bombed because of a human error. And I am frustrated right now. Ah, I can't tell you how many times that has happened. So you can't get rid of that. That's part of the job, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still frustrating. Cleaning data. I absolutely hate cleaning data.
1: That's a yeah, who likes cleaning data? Don't you lose your mind staring at the computer screen when you're cleaning data?
0: A little bit, a little bit. You get a little crazy.
1: That's the job for the bots. We kind of alluded a little bit to this earlier on. There are going to be some people that are thinking, "I'd love to work in Minden's team," or "I'd love to be someone who could be a prospect for working in the talent intelligence world." You mentioned a few things that people could learn. Let's say I'm listening and I'm thinking, "I want to learn this on my own," because we kind of spoke about like some programs may have some things. But you did say it's about taking the initiative and you learned a lot of things through trial and error practice and and resources you found. So what would you say are like the four or five things or even top three things that people really should learn to master and where could they learn that on their own?
0: What you can do if you don't have this skill set or you're trying to develop it is like projects to kind of get there. We hired somebody... Who didn't have a whole lot of experience, but what we did use through the interview and what I recommend that you do if you're young and you're still in school is to get the projects or experience by like, just do something that you can put onto a resume and talk about intelligently about. There's prediction, take a predictive model contest and just try that out and just put that on your resume so that you can talk about it during your interview, right? If your teachers, your school, your job is doing something, just ask them if you can do something, right? Can I do something? Whether you use it or not, can you let me do this so I can get the experience and practice? You get it and you can use it. If you don't like it, then you've wasted none of your time. You wasted 15 minutes reading through it before you fall asleep during my presentation.
1: But they need to grant you access to their data, right? In order for you to do something like that. That's what you're asking. You're saying, can I do a cool little research study, basically? Can I show a predictive? Can I look at a bunch of variables, get a little bit of your data, and then try and indicate what is predicting what outcome? Is is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Yeah. And if it can't be something confidential, can you do something else that you can talk about in your interview? For example, I remember this interview because it was great. And he didn't have a whole lot of experience, but he said, like, hey, I created a model to predict Which is the better play style to win in a first-person shooter game, right? (laughs) And and we call it. Here's how I collected the data. Here's how I bucketed it. Here's how I measured it. And overall, my assessment. And frankly, like the process was a little silly at times, right? Like how (laughs) they could do that, how they bucketed it. But the thought process, it was on the resume and allowed me to ask questions and give this person the ability to talk about their ability to think critically, take about a problem, and then speak about it in a non-statistical way, which is all the stuff I just said that was important, right? By saying, oh, this was how I did and how did they rank? You know, they ranked in the top 10% of people predicting something. That's a great thing to get to do. So it doesn't even have to be specifically tied to the people data. It's got to give you the ability to transfer that skill set to your next role. So I think that's great. And there's a lot of datasets that are specifically samples of HR data that you can then take and say, I took this model and I did this as a project, right? You can have a list of projects at the bottom of your resume to kind of talk about things. If you have zero resources, you don't have a cool professor who will sign off on it, your job isn't cool, then go and just do the project on your own and write it, put it on your resume to at least say like, have the opportunity to talk about it. Because otherwise, it's not discoverable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think some people get afraid when they hear the word model, but it kind of sounds to me like it's basically just a research study that you're showing that I can predict this outcome. I'm collecting these variables. I'm going to look for correlations. I'm going to look for significant differences. I'm going to look for a pattern. Between what predicts what I'm going to maybe f- figure out which ones have certain degrees of weight, right? Like, I guess do a regression analysis. Perhaps maybe I'm messing up my stats here, but you're basically looking to see, can we predict an outcome? You know, why it kind of reminds me a little bit like ma- the movie Moneyball. I don't know if that's kind of like a pop video in your world. It's probably a good gateway for laymans, you know, for people on the outside world to get a little idea of what we're talking about when we talk about modeling. Is that fair or am i like off track here
0: that's right on track you can say we money balls talent
1: <laughs> i love that moneyball talent is going to be the title of this podcast episode right <laughs> okay like seriously though if there are people out there that are trying to get their head around what this is and they watch that movie moneyball and they can start to think, okay, well, how can I predict something? What data can I collect? Where from? Some of it is public. Some of it might be your organization, but ultimately it can help make a business decision. And if you can actually do something that adds some value to the organization you're a part of, and that value is they can make a better hiring decision or they can make a better development decision, whatever it is, then you're adding value to the organization. If they apply to a job like yours, then your team That kind of... The fact they've taken the initiative, they can walk you through how I measured these things, how I collected that stuff, what I found, and what value it adds, and how I communicated that, and how I even convinced the organizational leaders to let me do this. Because that in itself, there's a certain degree of salesmanship or communication skills that's going to be needed in order to get buy-in to even start the project. And certainly, it's going to need some pretty good communication skills to help convince people to actually use the conclusions of your project to actually make some changes as well.
0: Yep. All of that. All of it. And it gets easier with time. You can just do it a little bit more. Have conversations with people on LinkedIn. You'll get better at it just organically by talking to people about it. Or talk data science to Theo. If you can tell, explain what you do to Teddy then you can explain what you do to an executive. And they probably don't know who Teddy is. Teddy is Ben's two and a half year old son. So if you can, if your two and a half year old can inherit back what daddy does, then you are doing a good job of explaining what you do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and if you can keep his attention span on that, then you're definitely going to keep the attention span of an executive who maybe isn't that interested or understands data as much as you do. But I totally agree with that. I honestly, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I personally believe that if you have a teacher or a professor who like you're falling asleep as you're listening to them, you think you're stupid because you don't understand what they're saying and you ultimately kick yourself because three other people in the class seem to know what's going on. The truth is the teacher more often than not, the professor more often than not, or in this case, the specialist within the department They're just not explaining it the way a child would need you to explain it. And if they were better at explaining it in really simple terms, that's one of the reasons why I try really hard when I have guests on this podcast to try and translate some of the things they're saying because they're so used to saying it in their world. No offense to you, Lyndon, but you're surrounded by data people, right? So a lot of this stuff is going to seem like, Daily, we're well, we really getting. I'm asking, you know, I'm really dumbing down or trying to dumb down some of the things that you're talking about. But when you actually have someone that feels like they're not very good because they don't understand, I think there should be a little bit more light shone on the teacher that maybe you needed a better job at breaking it down for yeah, people.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's funny how that flips, that dynamic flips. Like when you're in school, you're failing, you're bad because you're not able to understand things. When you get out of school, you're failing because you're not able to explain things. It's like, it's that flip, exactly what you're saying. And that's a critical part of the job.
1: It is. And I actually think, you know, I don't think for a second that was a throwaway comment of yours just now, but that was certainly like a quickly commented part of it. It's like, it is such an important part of any specialist's job to communicate with other people because it's so easy for the other people just to sort of like not really get it and ultimately impacts the project further down the line because there was a misunderstanding and that person was too embarrassed to ask a question. And often there are too many experts that they like the fact that they're the experts. So they speak in language that only they understand.
0: I have a fun story about that. Two stories, two stories. One is from you, because I remember we had to do those lit reviews for those research articles. And I was like, man, this article is really complicated. I'm just going to write down what they said in this very complex scientific jargon and write it down. And I remember you said once like, Lyndon, people will appreciate and respect you more if you can explain this complex thing in simpler terms. Because I was basically pushing back way too much information from the, the one-pager review. And I was like, okay, I get that Ben said that. I don't really get it. I'll just keep going on. <laughs> but, <laughs> so there are years later, I was working with our executive director of talent acquisition. And I was explaining something to her and she looked at me and she said to me, Linda, I get that you're smart. We hired you because you're smart. We know that you can do smart things, but I need you to just tell me whatever you're doing, I need you to explain it to me in English because while you're smart at this, you're not being very smart at explaining this in a way that I can understand it. And that wasn't exactly what she said. It had that same connotation. It was a meaningful thing for me to take away. Like part of your job is to be able to take the science complex stuff and deal with it. And what you give to the world, you output might be as simple as a yup, right? Is this good science? Yup. Do you need me to explain more? I will. But if you're happy with the yup, we're good to move. Lyndon, I
1: don't want to take up any more of your time, though I wish I could. I know that you're a very popular person right now, both online and also in your house, because you've got a lot of demands and also within your company. So I'm going to let you go. But Thank you so much for your time coming on today. I think there's a lot of really great stuff we've covered. And I really hope that I can get you back on here at some point in the future and learn about all the cool stuff that you're working on and where you see the future. Because you've got one hell of a vision for what's coming around the corner. And you're literally in the driving seat of one of the fastest cars on the road in your industry working at Verizon at the moment. I can't imagine there's that many other people that will be able to talk about the kind of things you're talking about. So thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. It's always fun. It's great to connect. It's been a while. We'll look forward to having more conversations. Because that's it, yeah.
1: Thank you, Lyndon. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, Or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.